hello, and welcome to The Steaks, the greasy breakfast burrito for your news cycle hangover. I'm Holly Anderson, Director of Politics and News for MTV News. Today on the show, Jane Coaston sits down with a movie reviewer for a conservative Christian website and talks about how he studies pop culture. Teo Bugby explores the America First ideology in movies like the upcoming Snowden with film critic Matt Zoller Seitz. And our poet in residence, Marcus Ellsworth, shares a piece about the pitfalls of having a savior complex when you genuinely want to help others. But first, on Thursday, Apple announced the shiny new iPhone 7, complete with a better camera and no headphones plug. The new iPhone will instead come with tiny wireless earbuds that you will definitely lose. I don't even own them yet, and I estimate I have already lost, like, nine. And if that's not reason enough to hate them, our celebrated MTV podcast czar, Michael Catano, found another reason having to do with digital rights management. Kids, ask your parents with first-gen iPods to explain that one to you. Katano spoke with the Electronic Frontier Foundation senior staff attorney, Mitch Stoltz, to explain why wireless earbuds are also a clever way to stop music piracy. I wanted to start by asking a really broad question. Um, A lot of our listeners may not be completely aware of what it is we're talking about when we talk about DRM. And I was wondering if you could just sort of explain what that term means. It stands for digital rights management or sometimes digital restrictions management. It's a broad term that covers a lot of technologies, mostly involving encryption, that are designed to uh, limit access to creative work or limit copying of of creative work. We're really mainly about limiting access. So it's the encryption on DVDs. It's the encryption on streaming video. It's the... technology behind what you see when you try to watch video and, and it says, uh, I'm sorry, you don't have the rights to this. Is it safe to say then that DRM is generally uh, thought of in industry terms? So uh, for people like Spotify and industry rights organizations like the RIAA and the MPAA, they look at DRM as a way to stop piracy. Publicly, they say they look at DRM as a way to stop piracy. In reality, I think they look at DRM as a way to extract multiple payments and payments for different types of uses and uh, essentially to control when, where, and how people are experiencing creative work and charging for the privilege of better experiences. So we're speaking today because Apple uh, announced that they're releasing a new iPhone um, this week, uh, the iPhone 7. And one of the things that's gotten a lot of attention about that consumer product release uh, is that for the first time they're releasing a phone that doesn't contain a traditional analog uh, mini plug, what's called a TRS jack on the phone. So you can't take a traditional normal pair of headphones and plug it in and hear sound anymore. It's a completely digital connection. Can you explain to us why that is a significant change in the, in the iPhone and in phone technology in general? Sure. The analog audio jacks, the, the, the kind that'll accept a regular pair of headphones or uh, uh, auxiliary cable or you know many other things like that, is just extremely widespread. So abandoning them is a big deal. And going to all digital outputs 
raises the possibility of reintroducing DRM on that con connection. Apple um, pushed back against DRM very publicly about 10 years ago uh, when it came to encrypting music files. Um, they, uh, they and, and as a company, they have a very kind of pro-privacy, public-facing stance. It seems like they tend to side, on, side with consumers a lot of the time, um, and their stance on DRM in the past goes hand in hand with this. Um, so for a lot of people, losing the headphone jack is really just a minor inconvenience. They're going to need to buy a new set of headphones or, you know, they're going to, it's just going to be a, a minor irritation. But the way you're talking about it, it sounds like this could be the start of something slightly more ominous or a way for the RIAA and other industry lobbying organizations to kind of take another pass at something they had previously abandoned. Is that correct? There's not going to be much immediate impact. Uh, Apple said in their announcement yesterday that they're going to include a dongle with the phone that will uh, accept uh, regular audio uh, output jack uh, so that you can keep using existing headphones, you can keep using auxiliary cables. There, there's a potential for trouble be, uh, because the iPhone is the, really the sort of flagship personal audio listening device now, or one of them. And Apple has always, you know, for decades, really set trends in personal computing design. We, they eliminated the three and a half inch floppy drive. Eventually, everyone eliminated the three and a half inch floppy drive, although there were sound reasons for that one. So this isn't some minor product, and, and Apple beginning to remove audio, analog audio outputs could start a trend to really almost completely eliminating analog audio outputs from personal computing hardware. And that is what would essentially open the door for more control. And the worry is that not only Apple or the hardware maker, but the, the software company, so the, the company that designs the app or the music service, um, will get to choose which sort of listening hardware will work. There's no evidence of this yet, right? We don't know this is happening yet, but, but in the future, it's certainly possible that a particular audio app will disable the dongle. So you can't use your analog headphones. You can't use an auxiliary cable. You probably couldn't use the uh, audio boot that connects to a hearing aid <laughs> at the whim of the software maker. What do you think the ideal world looks like through someone like Spotify's eyes or the RIAA's eyes or the people who are trying to monetize streaming music services? What kind of control do they really want to have over your phone and how you experience music? It's hard to say with the specifics because markets change, consumer tastes change. I think a lot of those folks have always kind of hewed to a philosophy of maximum control. Um, again, we're seeing this more in the video space. And that's a worry here, too, because certainly people watch video on iPhones and iPads and other mobile devices, tablets and other mobile devices. Uh, so I actually think that may be the first place that you, that you see companies trying to selectively disable the audio, you know, as a way of supposedly controlling recording or copying or reproduction, but, but, but really also just sort of exploiting partnerships with particular hardware manufacturers who are making headphones or uh, uh, Bluetooth speakers or, or car interfaces or what have you. One of the things that I can imagine 
someone like Spotify or Apple Music saying is, well, we just spent a million dollars or however much to get this Frank Ocean exclusive streaming record on our service. And this analog output provides a very easy way for a someone who is stealing music or trying to, you know, uh, distribute music illegally to simply plug a high quality connection into the phone and plug the cable into another recording device and get a high quality rip of what should be an exclusive product that we have control over. So I can see that kind of shift from uh, people purchasing, you know, physical objects that contain sound like CDs and cassettes and LPs to a music service that exists solely in the cloud being a real argument for disabling audio connections that we no longer own the music that we buy we have the right to listen to it under the terms laid out by spotify or other streaming services so um this to me really seems like a step further towards that to getting away from purchasing music and towards paying for the right to listen to it i think it raises the possibility and i I think it, it would be a big step. DRM and music, in a sense, never really caught on because even before there was uh, digital music through computers, there was CDs. You could always rip CDs to a computer and then to a mobile device, and there was no DRM involved. So, in a sense, that it never really caught on, and, and it was abandoned after a few years. So, to, to return to that sort of everything is in the sandbox of, of, of in, encryption and access controls would be a big step. But Apple's move with the iPhone has opened the door to that. And so I think we need to uh, be vigilant and and look carefully for sides of that trend continuing and make sure that Apple and the the, the major music services and the record labels all know that, that consumers wouldn't stand for that. Do you think that this is somehow plays into a generational kind of divide between younger consumers and older consumers where younger consumers are simply at this point used to giving over a certain level of control and a certain level of access to corporations and to the people that make the devices they use in exchange for a better user experience than those of us who grew up at a time when you were not so intertwined with the people providing hardware and software services. I actually don't see this as a generational issue. I think people of any age, you're going to find people who are really happy with the products that they're offered and using them as the manufacturer or the seller expects them to use it. And then you're always going to have people who want to control their own experience of creative work and of technology EFF was founded on the the idea that the growth of technology should increase our personal rights and freedoms, not erode them. And this is potentially an example of that, which is why we're looking carefully at it. That was MTV podcast producer Michael Catano speaking with Electronic Frontier Foundation senior staff attorney Mitch Stoltz. You can learn more about the foundation at EFF.org.
Imagine that PETA provided detailed reviews on its website of, like, steakhouses. That's how our own Jane Coaston, MTV News politics writer, explains Plugged In, a blog that reviews music, movies, video games, and TV shows through a conservative Christian viewpoint. The blog is run by Focus on the Family, a powerful ministry that, in their words, provides resources for couples to build healthy marriages that reflect God's design, and for parents to raise their children according to morals and values grounded in biblical principles. Doesn't seem to have a lot in common with MTV, but we actually had a couple great conversations with them this week. Jane called up senior associate editor of Plugged In, Adam Holtz, to talk about how he watches a lot of unholy stuff for righteous reasons. First and foremost, I kind of wanted to talk about, you know, how much, you know, when you're going in to see a movie, obviously you're not going into it in a vacuum. You've heard a lot about the movie or something like that. So how much does kind of what you know about the movie already do you feel as if, you know, if you have heard that, like, oh, you know, let's say, for example, um, uh, I re- recently remember that, you know, one of the movies that you have reviewed, um, and this was obviously about a decade ago, was Brokeback Mountain. And so how much with a movie like that where you kind of know that this is something that probably you're not, you know, from a evangelical Christian perspective, you're not going to agree with, your audience isn't going to agree with, how much do you think that that affects how you see the movie? That's a great question. I'm not 100% sure how to answer it. I will say in a general sense, the bigger the buzz is for a movie, the more likely we are to do research ahead of time and to know what we're getting into. So um, Brokeback's a good example of one where we read everything ahead of time, um, although it was a decade ago, so my memory is a little bit foggy on that. You know, a more recent example would be Fifty Shades of Grey. You know, we wanted to know how much, you know, what are we going to be exposed to? What, what are, um, what are we going to be interested in focusing on? So I think with stuff that we know is going to have harsh content and the same can be said of like the saw movies or anything that, where we know there's going to be really graphic content, either sexually or violence wise, we try to do our research so that we're not caught by surprise. And, you know, it's content that is, can be difficult. And so, especially with really, um, you know, like the Saw movies, some of, of, um, the hostile movies, uh, those sorts of things. We'll really pray for each other ahead of time. You know, just that the images and the things that we're exposed to don't stay with us in a, in a way that is damaging. Uh, cause we, we believe that those things are, are influential. So, um, thinking more about kind of what that experience is like and thinking about kind of not necessarily a violent genre of films, but, um, I think a lot of people, may have come to you um, when the Harry Potter movies and books started coming out. Uh So I think for a lot of people, they'll remember that there was a big brouhaha about whether or not it was appropriate for Christians to read the Harry Potter books or see the Harry Potter movies. Clearly, you know, I cannot, as far as I know, I cannot wave a wand and get someone (laughs) to, you know, raise up in the air or do the cruciatus curse or something like that. Is that challenging for you? Because on the one hand, you clearly are, you know, it's a book, it's a movie. And I'm sure that you have so many people telling you all the time, like, it's just a book, it's just a movie. But at the same time, from your perspective, it's never just a book and it's never just a movie. No, I think that we want to acknowledge that 
uh, and maybe this is kind of a cornerstone, the way something influences us personally may not be the way it influences somebody else. And, you know, while the vast majority of people who went to see Harry Potter, for instance, or read the books, accepted it as exactly what it was, which was a fantasy about this, this boy and his friends who grow up and they battle this great evil, um, there was some evidence that a small percentage of those people who were fans really did get turned on to um, an occultic worldview. Now, the question is, how big a deal do you make over that? Um, Harry Potter was was challenging because J.K. Rowling has said that she was a Christian and that she intended Harry Potter to be a Christ figure of sorts. And I think there are a lot of people out there who received that for exactly what it was. And on the other hand, you know, there is sorcery. There are these magical elements. And I think there are people out there who take passages from the Old Testament and really say, Anything that deals with magic or witchcraft or sorcery, even in a fantastical form, is something that we really have to be careful of. And I think there are legitimate reasons for both of those perspectives. And we have both of those groups of people in our constituency. And so I think we try to do our best to acknowledge both of those and um, to not be hysterical, but not to be dismissive either in understanding that uh, media plays a role in what some people do. Do you find it challenging sometimes that you'll be, you know, there will be a movie that comes out and people will be talking, you know, kind of more secular reviewers will be talking about, you know, this is an incredibly important film. You know, this is going to win like 15 Oscars and it's very important. Everyone should go see it. This is great. Yeah. Do you sometimes find yourself thinking, Yes, that's true, but no, I can't recommend this to my readers. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think there have been a lot. Well, the list came out just a last week of they surveyed a bunch of film reviewers and, um, you know, the best movies of the 21st century so far. And there was an article in Slate or Salon. Um, somebody wrote, you know, this is a grim list. <laughs> there's a lot of death. There's a lot of tragedy. Um the Revenant last year was a story of heroism and survival, but it was it was really grim. Um, and is that a story? Do you want to take on those images and the things that happen in a movie like that uh, in order to appreciate the story? Well, that's a question we'll try to ask our readers, especially with with R rated stuff that has. Um, a lot of explicit imagery, be it sexual or violence or drugs. Uh, another example, this is a couple of years ago, was Black Swan with Natalie Portman. Um, that was a, a really interesting film that was got a lot of critical buzz, but I came out feeling was really nihilistic. Certainly, as, a, as somebody who sees movies professionally for a living, I can appreciate why something is hailed in the mainstream press, but it can still have content that will cause us to, to really caution people, and I think caution is the operative word for us. There's not, there's not a lot of stuff that I would say we come out and just flat out say, this is just junk. Don't go to this movie under any circumstance. There are movies that will say, this has these redemptive elements, and this is the stuff that's going on, and because of that, you should be really cautious. So I think that would be a stance that we take more often than not. 
So um, shifting over to music, um, as you know, as you mentioned, uh, plugged in does music reviews as well. Do you think that there has been specifically, you know, from my perspective, I've noticed that there are certain genres of music that say 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, you may have, re- you know, and when I say you, I mean plugged in, you may have reviewed right. an album, for instance, uh, let's say listening to um, metal or something like that and said, you know, okay, there are these redemptive elements, but the overall sound itself is angry. And so, yeah. we, you know, we think that's negative. Do you think right. that that's shifting, especially as I think that, you know, there is obviously for people listening um, to this podcast, there is such thing as Christian metal. There yeah. is such thing as, you know, Christian rock music. Sure. Do you think that that influence means that, you know, you're more likely to listen when you're listening to like a metal album or something like that, you're more likely to be like, oh, this is, you know, you know, there are these redemptive qualities. Here's, here are the lyrics. And overall, you know, it's pretty good rather than listening to the sound of it and being like, but the sound sounds angry. Yeah. No, I think so. I think um, we mostly deal with content. I mean, before Tim Lambesis had this tragic thing with hiring a hitman to kill his wife, allegedly, um, which he's in prison for now, I, I believe. He, he's the front man for a well-known Christian metalcore band called As I Lay Dying. Man, yes, I remember. We, we loved As I Lay Dying stuff. And even some stuff that wasn't specifically Christian, Killswitch Engage is another metalcore band. And metalcore, if you're not familiar, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar, involves not only singing, but the guttural growling. You know, some people jokingly call it Cookie Monster vocals. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty hardcore. Um, I can take it in small doses, but it's, it's probably not my favorite. Um, Man, Killswitch Engage has had some terrific albums. Um, and, you know, we, I don't know that we weigh the aggressive, heavy sound of metal too much as a negative anymore. And, I mean, frankly, I'm a, I'm a big rock and metal guy myself. So. so thinking about, going back to talking about movies. So when you're doing something, you know, with violence in movies specifically, um, and I think that one thing that's come up um, thinking about violence in movies is that you, you know, you'll note violence in movies, but you also, for instance, really enjoyed, uh, I think Plugged In really enjoyed, and Christian audiences really enjoyed Passion of the Christ. Right. Passion of the Christ being a movie that, um, you know, as an anecdote, uh, my parents, I believe, started to watch and made it about 10 minutes in. And yeah. just were like, I don't think we can do this. You know, I think that some people kind of see that as a little bit hypocritical to be like, sure. oh, you know, there's too much there's too much violence in this Jason Bourne movie, but this Mel Gibson movie is you know, that's one you know, that and Apocalypto are right. both incredibly violent movies. Right. And obviously the Passion of the Christ, you know, the story of, you know, Christ's death is innately a violent story. But you know, sure. what would you kind of say to people who are saying like, doesn't it seem a little bit odd that you're Okay, completely okay with violence here, but not okay with violence here. Right. Well, I think it, it begs the bigger question of context and the context of violence in the story you're trying to tell. And obviously the context of the Passion of the Christ, as you said, was Christ's crucifixion. And, and Mel gave us a depiction of that that was extremely graphic. Um, and I think that it, when it came out, we certainly did 
really like it. And, and we really like the movie. I think if it were released today, I don't know that we would have been as glowing about it as we were. Um, and what, do you happen to know the name of Mel Gibson's upcoming film? I know what you're talking about. It's like the soldier who rescues his unit, even though yes. he, uh, he doesn't hold weapons. I think it's going to be another film that will have some really great themes and a lot of violence. And we're trying to walk the balance between that. And I'm not sure that we maybe totally got that right with Passion of the Christ. Obviously, we've got Mel Gibson trying to give us a pretty realistic depiction of what probably happened. And the reality is, I think, well, one reality is I think that our our depictions of the crucifixion tend to be sanitized and what Mel gave us wasn't sanitized at all. Uh, and so in that respect, it's not totally dissimilar than the old world war two movies where somebody would just get shot and they would fall down versus, you know, what Steven Spielberg did with saving private Ryan, which was this, this shockingly realistic depiction of violence. This fall, what movies are you looking forward to reviewing? I, Personally, I'm looking forward. This is such a cop-out answer, but it's a real answer. Uh, I'm really looking forward to Rogue One. Um, the new Disney movie Moana looks pretty interesting. Um, there's not just a ton of stuff this fall that just absolutely grabs my attention. Um, I think the Deepwater Horizon movie looks like it, it could be a good one. Uh, although I have to confess I'm kind of a Mark Wahlberg fan, so I may be biased because of that. Thanks so much for continuing yeah. this conversation with me and taking the time. Yeah, absolutely. That was MTV News political reporter Jane Coaston in Washington, D.C., speaking with Adam Holtz, senior associate editor of Plugged In. You can read a longer version of this discussion in Jane's column from earlier this week, Watching Saw for Jesus, on mtvnews.com. Meanwhile, in New York, our own Teo Bugby sat down with film critic Matt Zoller Seitz to talk about his new book about Hollywood filmmaker Oliver Stone, whose movies like Platoon, JFK, and the upcoming Snowden explore the abusive overreach of America First ideology. Well, Matt, if you could just introduce yourself and maybe tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from and what you do. Okay, I'm Matt Zoller Seitz. I am the uh, television critic for New York Magazine, the editor in chief of RogerEbert.com, and I'm the author of books on television and film. And they include the Wes Anderson Collection, Mad Men Carousel, um, TV The Book with Alan Sepinwall, and now um, The Oliver Stone Experience. For listeners who um, aren't necessarily film nerds, film geeks, can you talk a little bit about who Oliver Stone is, his his career, the kinds of films that he made, yes. and sort of what you know drew you to his filmmaking? Well, Oliver Stone is the director of, among other things, um, JFK, Natural Born Killers, Born on the Fourth of July. Um, um, any given Sunday, U-turn. I could go on. I mean, the guy's been Platoon. writing Platoon. Gee, I can't even believe I forgot that Salvador. <laughs> I was mainly interested in Stone because um, he's just such a different director from Wes Anderson. He's just such a different person. I mean, you know, Wes is extremely reticent 
he'll talk to you for two hours about um, you know the lighting and and uh, uh, production design choices in a particular scene of a particular film, but he doesn't like to talk about his personal life. He just doesn't do it. And uh, that's not the case with Oliver Stone. That's not the case with Oliver Stone. In fact, the interesting thing about Oliver Stone is when you tr- when you specifically ask him about his personal life, it naturally gravitates towards um, film because he puts so much of himself in his films. And you could make an argument for the hero of many Oliver Stone films basically kind of being Oliver Stone in a way. Like the details change, but I think, you know, there's commonalities between the crusading Jim Garrison and JFK and um, Bud Fox, the innocent who gets corrupted in Wall Street, or, you know, obviously Chris Taylor in Platoon and um, Jim Morrison in The Doors. They're all aspects of Oliver even at the same time that they are characters that, you know, in many cases based on actual people. And um, and he's also extremely political. I mean, really, really politically engaged. He has been from the very beginning, even when he was a screenwriter doing doing um, work for hire, like he wrote the screenplay to Scarface. Mm-hmm. And Scarface, I would argue, in addition to being a really interesting modern gangster film and a great remake, is um, very much a political film about the blowback from U.S. foreign policy. And Oliver has always been really, really into that kind of thing. He always, you know, he he makes these big, loud, pulpy, often kind of movies, uh, often extremely masculine, often very violent. But there's also this undertone of kind of horror at at, at that kind of behavior and about um, the culture that produces that kind of behavior. And it it spoke very strongly to me growing up in, in Dallas, Texas, when I was a teenager in the 80s. He's definitely one of the most important directors to me. Like I think, I think in a large part, he and um, Scorsese and a lot of the '60s European art cinema giants kind of taught me how to see. Yeah, um, and I was wondering because so much of this book is interview based, how that relationship in terms of you as an interviewer and Oliver Stone as a filmmaker, how that was different from sort of the work that you did with Wes Anderson. Well, it was very, it was different. It was different. You know, Oliver is um, more, he's just more. He's just more. You know, Wes is a very a very cool, chill, laid-back guy. And um, and Oliver is like, he's like an Oliver Stone movie. <laughs> you know, he's, he's, he's uh, you know, he's big, he's colorful, he's loud, he's, um, he's intense. <clears throat> he's intense, he's intellectual, and he's emotional, and he's... And his mind roves all over the place. And the biggest problem that I had um, putting this book together was I have over 100 hours of recorded audio with Oliver, and I probably spent another, oh, God, I don't even know, probably another 100 hours going through his stuff. Um, But he would go off. Like one time we spent almost an hour (laughs) arguing about whether um, Zero Dark Thirty endorses or does not endorse endorse the use of torture. That is so funny, because while (laughs) I was reading it, I'm not kidding, I was waiting for him to bring up Zero Dark Thirty. Well, he did, so maybe there will be like an excerpt. What what did he think? He thinks it does. He thinks it does. And I think he's he's right. I think he he swayed me around his opinion. I mean, my argument was, yeah, well, they they do show a lot of torturing going on, but ultimately torture is not what leads to to them finding bin Laden in the movie. It's, you know, it's it's a, a, a treating a treating a prisoner decently is what repli- re- releases that information. He's like, yeah, but that's the classic good cop, bad cop technique in torture. Like, the only reason that worked is because they've been torturing the crap out of him for 
how many, however many weeks. Right. And it was like, okay, fine. One of the things I thought was really interesting in the book it, are the times when you sort of um, bring up that that his films could be and have been interpreted as either racist or homophobic or sexist or and he he really does sort of not shy away exactly yeah but it's like you're it's like talking to like he suddenly for someone who is so present is yeah. not there <laughs> yeah see i felt i didn't feel that i felt like he was a guy who was um doing his best to answer a question that he feels should not even be a question mm-hmm. you know that's the impression i got and there was a certain point where like we went around and around on the women issue and I do think his early films ha- are, are sexist in some ways. I mean, not just because they tend to be about extremely male worlds, but also just that the women are sort of adjuncts to the men. Like, they don't feel like they come alive in the way that they do in some of his later films. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's nobody in his early films who's as strong as, like, Pat Nixon and Nixon or right. uh, Mallory and Natural Born Killers or, um, uh, you know, just – I think he got better. I think he got better. But he couldn't see that, and he wouldn't. He wouldn't. Uh, um, every time I would go to this well, he would just he would just start giving me reasons why he thought the women in those early films were good characters, and and uh, I finally had to give up. When I showed him the book, you know, which I didn't, uh, you know, as a courtesy, really, because he'd given so much of his time. And uh, he got very agitated at certain points um, with me, and he was. And reading over the book, he confessed, like reading over the entire book, he was wondering if he had, he, he felt like he'd said too much. He would, there were a lot of things he felt like he would rather were not in the book. And there were one or two things that I did cut, like where he's you know he was talking trash about a particular director or a particular actor who he had he had worked with <laughs> or might work right. with one day. It was like, you know, the guy told me that he lost he lost his virginity to a prostitute hired by his father when he was 15. I can cut this part where he <laughs> criticizes such and such an actor. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Another one of the things that he is more defensive about in the book are the sort of allegations, or not even allegations, but the understanding that he's just a conspiracy mongerer. Right. Oh, um, yeah, he hates that. He he really, he really hates that. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, yeah, he's aware of that. He's He, he grapples with it. It bothers him. Um, one of my favorite Oliver Stone cameos was in Dave, where he was playing him. Yeah, Oliver Stone. That's, I know. I fr- when I was reading this and <laughs> telling a friend that I was doing it, they told me to go watch Dave. It's really, <laughs> it's a really funny cameo. And Oliver Can Stone. Can you explain the movie well, a little he, bit? Dave is a movie with Kevin Kline uh, playing two parts. He's playing the president, and he's playing a guy who's hired to impersonate the president when the president is incapacitated. <laughs> And and the and the imposter Dave is is uh, I think that's the name of the guy, not the president. Is um, doesn't know anything about being president. He completely is making it up as he goes along. It's a funny movie, but Oliver Stone appears on at one point I think on CNN yeah. and he's saying, you know, <laughs> I think this guy's an imposter. I don't think he's the real guy. And of course, the joke there is he actually is right. Right. His yeah. And then everyone's like, correct. all right, Oliver. They're like, Stone. get out of here, Oliver Stone, <laughs> conspiracy theorist. That's good. Yeah, I was just at the movies this weekend, and he's. Um, he has like a segment now before before the movie starts where it's like <laughs> yeah. him him with an iPhone being like uh, I'm Oliver Stone and this iPhone is going to destroy humanity. Exactly, it's yes. It's like and you should turn it off before the movie bye. Yes, yes, and yeah, he's not <laughs> it's above the biggest he- laugh at the light between oceans. That's great. <laughs> That's great. Although, you know, how much of a victory is that ultimately? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love that ad and he said I like when he's looking at Kitten Vinny and he, he goes adorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he has like an interesting an interesting sense of humor about himself. 
I wanted to talk about the sort of the JFK portions of this. Yeah. Um, and so if if we could maybe talk a little bit about just sort of the timeline and the specifics of how JFK came out and how the media responded to it, because I do think that's one of the things about his career that um, the sort of political leanings of his art sort of came together in that movie and at the same time fell apart, Mm -hmm. you know? I agree. And so I think there's something going on with that film that really has defined his career in a very specific way. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that he, um, well, for starters, just to put it in context, JFK is a film about Jim Garrison's um, investigation into the assassination of John F. Kennedy. He didn't believe in the Warren report, which which concluded that Oswald, there was a single shooter, it was Oswald, Lee Harvey Oswald, and then he acted alone. And Stone was not certainly not the only people, uh, no, not the only person to question that, far from it. Um, but there had been many, many books and a number of films made that were kind of challenging some, the official version in some way. But this was the first big Hollywood movie with stars in it. You know, Kevin Costner was the lead. And uh, and it was an expensive movie, and it was a good-looking movie, and it was also aesthetically a revolutionary movie. And but when it came out, the uh, the way that he presents a conspiracy, which is Garrison is interviewing witnesses. Most of his witnesses are disreputable. A lot of them are like there's a there's a guy who flies there's a guy who flies planes, played by Joe Pesci, who's a drug addict and and has lost all of his hair due to a disease, and he wears this crazy red wig. <laughs> and and there's you know. Uh, Kevin Bacon is a sex hustler. And, you know, there's a lot of fringe characters who are telling uh, their version of the, the what really happened. And as they say it, you see Jim, Jim Garrison imagining what the story that they're telling. Yeah, it's him. a very open-ended sort of, it's more of a suggestion as opposed to a reconstruction or a... Right, an in- right. And, and, but when it came out, um, <clears throat> the mainstream media attacked this movie for presenting what they called a distorted view of history. And this is another one of those cases where you could say the movie tells you how to watch it. And I think if you look at that movie now, you would go, what was the big deal? It's pretty clearly coded. Like whenever somebody starts telling a story and they cut to Jim Garrison and suddenly you flash back, you know, he created this incredible, arresting, original way of telling a story, which he showcased, I think, in JFK. Like, I think he'd been trying it out in Born on the Fourth of July and the Doors, but I think in JFK, it really jumps into the room as like, here I am, folks! And he, and Can you he, talk about that new style a little yeah, bit in specifics? It was, well, it was, it was um, a very, the editing was fast. It was a fast, super fast information delivery, like almost download way of presenting information. Usually the way that most uh, flashbacks would be presented in sort of classical, classically styled Hollywood movies is, you know, somebody, husband says, do you remember that afternoon at the lake? And the wife says, yes, my dear. Oh, I remember it vividly. And then, you know, there's some kind of device indicating (laughs) now we travel back into the past. And Stone would have somebody talking and suddenly there was a cut to some person you've never met before it's silent you're hearing jim garrison talking but you're looking at um uh, a right-wing cuban activist uh, uh having words with oswald on a street corner in new orleans in 1962 or mm-hmm. something like that and and um 
there were a lot this was a huge huge like other people had done things like this but i don't think anybody had ever done it quite as brilliantly as this movie did and i think that that kind of editing it's funny because when i look at political commercials now i see a lot of them look like jfk yeah and they have for decades yeah it's like one of those things where <laughs> it's like when you watch like really really old movies you don't get the same impact of a close up mm. where it's like a close up was like a relatively rare thing but now because we see close ups in tv all the time or in you know it's like the shot reverse shot you don't get the same weird no. impact of like oh this is not usual you know his style has become so normalized within mm-hmm. sort of our understanding of how not just like fiction films but like documentaries use that sort of that cuts those cuts in the way that they construct their stories yeah definitely and i think there are some people who do you know there are people who did oliver stone for a while like that that was kind of their style was they're just going to do kind of an oliver stone thing and sometimes they were good and sometimes they were not so good. And one of the reasons why Oliver got away from that was that he felt like if everybody is doing this, then it's not special anymore. But it's interesting what you say about the close-up because I do think that um, some of the some of the specialness, I think if you go back and you watch you know, JFK, U-Turn, Any Given Sunday, Nixon, Heaven and Earth, um, Natural Born Killers, um, I think they still feel kind of radical in a way like because of the edge that they have and sometimes the political kind of worldview that they express, but um, aesthetically, they're not as shocking as they were because so many, uh, you know, anytime there's any kind of aesthetic innovation, then it comes along and gets sort of normalized. Right. And then, and ultimately, when you see it used in like a, you know, a, a, an ad for perfume or cars or something, then you know it's officially not dangerous anymore. That was MTV pop culture writer Teo Bugby and Matt zoller Seitz talking about Matt's new book, The Oliver Stone Experience, available everywhere September 13th. Oliver Stone's next picture, Snowden, comes out September 16th. His greatest movie remains any given Sunday, and I am perfectly willing to settle any differences of opinion on this in a bare-knuckle locker room brawl. Finally this week, from Tennessee, MTV News poet-in-residence Marcus Ellsworth is going to finish out our time together with a poem on how helping others can come with the danger of developing a savior complex. There is a human instinct to help. We are communal creatures who often rely on others to survive. Sometimes we need And when we see others in need, we want to be there as we hope someone else will be there when it is our turn to lack. But in that altruism, ego can breed the desire to be a savior. And nobody needs a savior. Saviors offer bottled water with one hand, hold a gun in the other, and leave cholera in rivers. Saviors truck in construction workers to rebuild storm-ravaged cities when the people there need jobs. Saviors get to go home. Saviors get to forget. Saviors get to feel like they did something. And yet, the need lingers. No one needs a savior to lead them to salvation. People need accomplices to follow them to freedom. 
They need co-conspirators asking, how can I help, before showing up with an answer to a question no one was asking. And sometimes, more often than we may think, they need others to stay away while they figure out what they even need. And when no one listens to the people living at the center of a problem, when no one heeds the solutions they forge, the saviors come with their good intentions to pave new roads to a hell someone else has to live in. But when we hear each other, we find better ways. We see need transform into strategy, struggle becomes fellowship, and handouts give way to hands held in solidarity. We can see each other as people who can commune and build and flourish while we help each other to save ourselves. That's it for us this week on The Stakes. We'll be back next week with more. From MTV News Los Angeles studio, I'm Holly Anderson. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at MTV Podcasts and subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.